Hello and welcome to Red Shirts. It's me, Jake Donaldson, your host, and I'm joined as ever by my co-hosts, Maddie, Star Trek Generations Church Yay! House, and Nathan, Generation Z, hashtag TikTok, hashtag Billie Eilish, Thomas. <laughs> Without further ado, let's engage. <laughs> That's actually accurate. Since that's what I think of yeah. Generation Z is they're the two things I know about. <laughs> I, I'm I'm I, I was born in the nineties. I, I my girlfriend. I was born in, in the nineties. Jake Fuck is you. barely. We're like Jake and I are millennials by like the edges of our fingernails, <laughs> and yet we're uh, like yeah, pathetic like, Gen Z, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, but but Maddie, Maddie, you've you've at least got your like. I I feel like you've got your fingers on the in the pies of uh, of, of like millennial culture and Gen Z culture. Yeah, no, Whereas I I thing. I am I am a millennial. Only by age, it, it, like yeah. my, my actual like. I I bought a drinks globe the other week, right? Your like, soul is pure boomer. Uh, my, my no, my soul's older than boomer. My soul is the soul of Sherlock Holmes in eighteen ninety four, right? I, I do not own any. I don't. I had to look up who Billie Eilish was before I did this. What? Right? When I no, when I, I wrote that when when I wrote that intro, I asked my girlfriend to tell me what she thought might be some things that Gen Z were into because I didn't have any clue. My girlfriend is older than I am. My girlfriend is thirty four years old. <laughs> I'm uh, twenty seven. Your girlfriend is thirty four years old. I thought yeah, she my was girlfriend's my 34. age. Wow! No, looking my, go- good, Jay. my girlfriend. Damn. Yeah, yeah. She knows she looks great. Um, but yeah, no. <laughs> so that that's... That, look how like how uh, that smug as shit that was. Yeah, she's, she's very good looking. <laughs> look how well I'm good with Your baby All boomer of our partners girlfriend are very good looking. <laughs> is in fact very good looking for her great old age. <laughs> <laughs> All of our partners are very attractive. Aww. Now let's go. Round of applause to ourselves. <laughs> Um, I just want to. Uh, no, no, hang on. We I haven't mean, finished this yet. Ma- uh, I, I just want to point out that uh, Maddie's boyfriend is Australian and is therefore better than everyone. <laughs> Yay! I'll tell him you said that. He'll be very flattered when he's when he's th- feeling a bit grumpy. He complains about how shit and, the UK is. Actually, he just does that yeah. all the time to wind me up. <laughs> and, and to be to be fair, Nathan's girlfriend is uh, Russian, so she thinks she's better than everyone. <laughs> Because I still have two complaints about your intro that have not been addressed, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not being I'm not being overruled on this matter okay. because Go on. number one of the three of us, what really irritates me is Maddie is by far the most on the on the pulse and into the memes <laughs> and the young people things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just wanted that out there. Number two, I am always, every birth-related thing, I am in between, right? Like, I was born in between the year. 
Um, I, I, I am on the cusp between Leo and Cancer, which means if I ever bother to uh, amuse myself by uh, reading my horoscope, I do get to pick which one is better because horoscopes are so badly fucking designed that if you're <laughs> born on the 23rd of July, sometimes you will be one horoscope and sometimes you will be other. And in some particularly bag magazines, you'll be both. <laughs> um, <laughs> furthermore, furthermore, in terms of generation, do, I again have got different answers about what generation I ha- I am. Some people say I'm millennial by the very end of it, and some say I'm the very start of Gen Z. And I, until I became 20, hadn't heard the term millennial or Gen Z. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Nathan, Nathan, you're Gen Z. <laughs> Shut up, old man. Get on with you. <laughs> okay, Puma. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you dare, okay, Puma me. Yeah. Oh, but right. you're so Boomer. Like, <laughs> I am not a Boomer. You can, you shut your face, Nathan Thomas. You can performatively, you can performatively have a go at Kia Starmer all you want. We know you're a secret player. Right? <laughs> Speaking of boomers, let's talk about Jim Kirk. Oh, um, it's, Jim. We're, we're looking at a TOS episode Yay! this week. Um, one of... g- genuinely, the first TOS episode I've actually enjoyed. Oh, piss off, as um, if this is the first one you've actually enjoyed. <laughs> We're looking at City on the Edge of Forever uh, from, I think, season one yes, or two of, of TOS. Yes, it's 29th episode of series one. Yeah. Uh, and I I absolutely loved this. I thought it was genuinely good and not in a campy Star Trek way that I think most TOS episodes <sighs> are. This is a sigh of uh, ultimate relief because I was genuinely terrified that you guys wouldn't love this episode. This is such an iconic legacy episode I think it's probably probably the most celebrated episode potentially in all of TOS and it's 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 the one TOS episode that that actually haunts me that <laughs> if I'm lying asleep lying in my bed not going to sleep at night and like a sense of loss and longing like comes into my head somehow associated with Star Trek it would be because I'm thinking about this episode yeah so I'm so relieved that you guys liked it because I I just well. think it's incredible I mean, there are issues with it, and uh, we haven't heard Nathan's opinion yet. So, uh, I, Nathan... I liked it, but I have a few rants. So, <laughs> well, uh... well, 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 with that said, do you want to get on and we can get through Nathan Thomas describes the plot in your patented don't, section? Don't describe it as getting through. <laughs> <laughs> I object to that. I don't say I, I don't say at the start of the podcast, you don't go, welcome to Red Shirts, it's like, oh, I best get through through this bit again. <laughs> anyway. I feel like I should just point out for the listeners that I've come into this recording uh, straight after doing a works pub quiz and I've uh, had a little bit to drink, Excellent. so that might explain part of the uh, the demeanour that I have at the moment, but we Nathan, are, get through your bit. <laughs> We're quite competitive this week. Like, I know. Yeah, I quite, I'm quite usually, enjoying it, though. Usually, yeah, usually when we make jokes at each other's expense, we laugh at them and then move on. This week we're going, yeah, come at me. All right. <laughs> quite, anyway, go on. let's get through it. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, we begin with uh, On the Bridge with uh, Red Alert and Sulu reporting Helm feeling sluggish. Uh, the console explodes and um, Sulu is taken out. Uh, Kirk calls for a medical team and explains via his logs that there are time ripples affecting them. They're investigating, but it's uh, clearly putting some strain on the Enterprise. McCoy treats Sulu, um, the screen shakes, and 
Uh, McCoy is injured. He's injected with too much of the uh, life-saving drug, goes mad, and uh, escapes the bridge. Kirk <laughs> calls security as we uh, cut to the opening titles. Uh, McCoy wanders around the ship in a mad frenzy and beats up a technician operating the transporter, <laughs> beaming himself away, and we don't have... Uh, the special effects budget is due to be strained so much that we don't actually even see him use <laughs> the transporter. <laughs> uh, we learn that the madness is due to the drug. Apparently, McCoy beams straight into the time disturbance. <laughs> so Kirk decides that's just the best place for him and Spock to go. Uh, the landing party seems to encounter a number of ruins, and Kirk orders the crew to fan out, an order they immediately basically ignore. Um, if you watch, they do not move. <laughs> it's great. Uh, the landing party... The Spock cannot explain it, but there is a single object in the middle of what the landing party found, which is the source of all the time disturbance. McCoy pops up from a rock just as her uh, passes, and the object starts to speak to Kirk and Spock. Turns out it is the Guardian of Forever. Um, he calls Spock thick. Uh, <laughs> the, the Guardian shows Kirk and Spock a gateway into their past, or, you know, Kirk's past. It doesn't show anything of Vulcan. Um, McCoy um, goes straight past um, the security team uh, that apprehend him, and Spock manages to render him unconscious. Kirk and Spock discuss the idea of time travelling back to save McCoy. McCoy darts through the portal um, after being unconscious for maybe five seconds, uh, through the portal and into the past. Ahura loses all contact with the ship. The Guardian says that this is because everything is gone. Kirk and Spock plan to set right whatever went wrong. Apparently Spock has worked out that it was some terrible time in American history. Whoa, Spock, you can't just pick an entire nation out like that. Um, <laughs> Spock and uh, Kirk are apparently in the Great Depression after travelling through time and stick out pretty fucking bad. Kirk decides to nick clothes and says he'll take from the rich and give back to the poor later. A policeman immediately catches them, beginning the running theme of this episode, Kirk and Spock cannot steal for shit. Um, <laughs> Um, he claims Spock is Chinese and impersonates racism. Uh, the <laughs> two Starfleet officers uh, knock the man unconscious in front of a full view of several civilians. <laughs> the next shot is them on the fucking run and breaking into a cellar. Uh, having changed, Spock now begins to hand wave how he can hit the right point to meet McCoy and talks about making some devices to help locate him. Uh, Kirk is caught by um, a lady who owns this place and tries to lie. He then tells her the truth. They were on the run from a policeman. Uh, they decide to get a job from the woman. The woman begins to outline her philosophy after feeding them and converting people to her ideas, which mostly seem to be outlining the belief uh, Star Trek has about the future. Back in the flat um, that Kirk secures from said woman, um, Spock learns the struggles of capitalism, as they don't have enough money for all the equipment and have to spend it all on food. Uh, unfortunately... Uh, at their next work uh, station, the two of them find precision tools. However, as they remain shit thieves, um, <laughs> Miss Keeler catches them immediately and requests Kirk walk her home um, in exchange for not making them give, up, give anything up. Miss Keeler decides Spock is gay for Kirk and uh, Kirk belongs somewhere else. Kirk and Miss Keeler walk home and she tries to understand him. Kirk starts to explain just a little about who he is by alluding to the future. A little later, Spock's device immediately shows Miss Keeler gets murdered by a future newspaper vision. 
Kirk also sees a future newspaper in the device talking about Keeler being involved with the president. They conclude that a possible solution may be the death of this innocent woman. McCoy arrives, shouting like a nutter about various bullshit and terrifies a seemingly homeless man. Uh, McCoy continues this nonsense for some time until he manages to collapse. The homeless man therefore decides to steal his phaser and disintegrates himself with it because he's a twit. Um, Kirk gets um, uh, increasingly irritated with the situation, confessing his love. Um, Meanwhile, McCoy manages to meet with um, uh, Keela, who... uh, starts to take care of him. We learn that pacifism is the problem. It delays the US <laughs> entry into the Second World War, allowing Germany to develop the atom bomb and destroy everything. Um, Spock acknowledges that uh, Keeler has the right principles, but at the wrong time. Which, you know, is a fucking cop-out. Um, <laughs> Kirk announces that he is in love with uh, Keeler. He has the usual level of emotion for this. Uh, Edith talks to McCoy, and meanwhile, uh, Kirk and Spock are wrestling with morality after Kirk saves Keeler from falling down the stairs. Keeler and McCoy continue to talk, and the latter is doing much better, though he doesn't believe uh, Keeler actually exists. McCoy doesn't know who Clark Gable is. Edith Keeler shouldn't know who Clark Gable is. He wasn't popular for another six years, but never mind. Um, (laughs) uh, Edith Keeler speaks about... Uh, McCoy and Kirk realises that he is here. The three men unite and Keeler crosses the road. Kirk prevents McCoy from saving Keeler. She is hit by a car and passes away there and then. The three men return from the past. Time is resumed and the Enterprise returns. The crew beam away. And that is the end of the episode. Oh, it's so sad. (laughs) Yeah, that that's... If you haven't seen this episode, seriously watch it, because it's very. It was very hard for me to summarize it like that. I think you really need to see to get why this episode is good. You need to see all of the little dialogues and little scenes that I brushed over very quickly because there is a lot of bonding that makes you care about Keela. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, like yeah. you know, you're on a good episode when one of the early problems in production is everyone looks at the script, uni- uh, unanimously agrees it's a masterpiece. The only problem is it doesn't quite fit Star Trek. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so um, it's mean, so well written, um, and and it you actually you care so much about Edith Keeler and Jim's love for her, despite the fact that she's mm. only on screen for like fifteen minutes at most. It's bonkers, and like and Shatner is giving his usual performance. Okay, I right. Think I love I'm gonna Edith Keeler. Let me. T- also, we'll talk co- about Shatner later. Okay, right. <laughs> because I I contest this, but this episode is is exceptionally well written because it was written by like multiple Hugo and Nebula award-winning author and screenplay writer Harlan Ellison who famously yeah. was like a total total lunatic in real life and, and once <laughs> like sent 213 bricks to his publisher because they said something rude about him and then like a dead gopher in the post absolutely he used legend. to like he was do, the I'm, kind of person who, just... would, who would like punch people over the table at like fan conventions like <laughs> But in terms of his writing output, he was, you know, second to none. And this is one he of his masterpieces. I, yeah. I've just sent a script to Sky TV, right? And I'm going to send them a bunch of bricks in the posters. As well, long as cause... you also follow it up with a dead gopher, which is what he then did after the bricks. <laughs> Fucking hell. I mean, yeah, no, I agree. This episode and it actually won awards the script for this mm, in itself yeah. won or at least was nominated for awards and i mean uh, from what i learned when i did some research is it went through a lot of different rewrites and the script had been changed yeah. from the original plan the the actual original storyline because obviously th- this 
they wanted to do a we go back to the 1920s style or 1930s style episode and originally the the reasoning for them going back in time was more dark and uh and roddenberry didn't want it to be involved in it because so originally it was going to have a uh, a theme about drug dealing oh god and and (laughs) So there was going to, as far as I understand it, there was going to be a plot in the original uh, in the original screenplay. Yeah. The plot was that there was a um, uh, a character called Beckwith, uh, an ensign or a yeoman or something like that, um, uh, like a lower character called Beckwith, who was dealing drugs aboard the Enterprise God. because oh because the the writer had sort of assumed that, uh, like in most military organisations, there would be some bad apples mm. amongst the crew. Yeah. Um, and the reason it got vetoed is because Roddenberry decided that that wasn't the case in Starfleet, and there wouldn't be anyone like that. They'd be weeded out. Also, but, also worth noting, censorship at the time wouldn't allow a drug dealer. Yes, to probably be on television. Yes, most likely. Um, I mean, we don't know because they never got that far. But um, yeah, another but, part of the reasoning is well, yeah. we probably can't film this character anyway. Well, yeah, that makes sense. But um, yeah, originally in the screenplay. Uh, Beckwith got found out for dealing drugs and then was sentenced to execution by firing squad. Oh my uh, god! <laughs> what? Va- via heck? Spock. So what? originally Sp- Spock shot him dead. <laughs> what? In, o- in execution. Um, and they went down to this planet to do that. What? Uh, and then when they were in the planet, they found this race of, uh, of like 10 foot tall aliens who control, who were called the Guardians and they controlled like time and space or something like that. And then um, in order to uh, avoid getting shot in the firing squad, this Beckwith character jumped through the portal into the 30s and they went back to find him, which, you know, actually sounds like a really good plot, no, but I'm obviously sorry, wouldn't be allowed. mental, and I'm really glad <laughs> they changed it to this one. But uh, I, I, I do like that that's the story behind it, and it got changed multiple times because of uh, all sorts. But that original screenplay won an award for uh, Best Syndicated... TV screenplay oh, nice. or something because um, it was submitted for that. Uh, we, but I, I love the fact that like this episode was originally going to be like even more gritty. Like it was essentially the initial version of it was like a time traveling version of The Departed or something. I mean, it sounds dystopian <laughs> to be honest. Like with the firing squad and the like, you know, death for drug dealing and yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, yeah, I, it's understandable that Roddenberry changed his mind mm. about that because that's very much not yeah. the vibe I think he wanted to go for yeah. with Starfleet. It was supposed yeah, to be. It comes up later in Deep Space Nine and Next Gen with the Marquis, I think. Um, yeah, good a point. Really, a really, really solid episode of Deep Space Nine that might be good to do pretty soon as a as a point of contrast. I think. I mean, probably with our recording plans and stuff, will be New Year now. But there's for including episodes like that. Yeah, and so came along like thirty see... years later as well. Like uh, when yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the vibe of TV was different. Changed. Yeah, yeah. Priorities have changed. Um, speaking of priorities, can I have a rant about the Nazis? Uh, <laughs> sure, sure. Go on. But never go forget on. that because... Edith Keeler, right? This, this is. I think it's so unfair that Edith Keeler was so amazing that she single-handedly was going to convince Franklin D. Roosevelt to sign some kind of peace <laughs> accord. But then that would yeah. then release some bizarre domino effect, allowing yeah. the Nazis okay, to take this is what I want to rant about. <laughs> This is what I want to rant about, and it's not just stuff, Trek's fault, and it's not even just this episode's fault, and I feel bad about bringing it up, but this is the thing that really 
cheese is my onions, <laughs> right? <laughs> it does what, sorry? <laughs> cheese is my onions. I was, you know, I was thinking of a verb and a thing. And, yeah. Anyway, the Nazis weren't that good at their fucking jobs, right? <laughs> so, what... The, the the Spock says that because the US uh, US entry into the war was delayed, yeah. there were the Nazis win. Okay, several problems with this. Like there are a lot of potential effects of the U of the US being delayed into the war. Uh, Britain could be in serious trouble because it might be deprived of supplies. Uh, the Russians might be unable to launch their big counteroffensive. They might have lost a lot more lives or be in a much worse position. Um, I think you're definitely looking at a nuclear bomb being dropped on Germany to end that war at that point, because mm. conventional warfare wouldn't have happened that well. Um, you know, Japan might have expanded more. There's lots of potential issues. But, you know, the US was some significant way away. There wasn't going to be a nuclear bomb dropped on them, because that would have required the Nazis acquiring air superiority in two theatres of war they never got. Furthermore, the Nazi uh, nuclear program was successfully derailed in 1943 by British agents. So, it, and, and, and this is where we get to the real heart of how shit Hitler was. Um, and I don't even mean, I don't even mean morally. Just, I just mean sorry. in terms just of achieving. Just want to interrupt for one. Just want to interrupt for one second. Uh, Shitler. There you go. Continue. <laughs> so Shitler. Schiller is an evil bastard man, right? But he's not even good. <laughs> he's evil bastard. Right? You heard right? it here first, guys. Red shirts no, podcast. The thing that really irritates me is the idea that the Nazi war machine was ever operated well because it was it was total shit. Like you know, it's a very good thing it was total shit because if it had been even marginally more effective, we might have lost. Um, oh, but, don't say that too hard, Nathan. Like, Loads of David Irving fanboys are quaking in their boots at the idea that the Nazis were actually not only evil but also bad at their jobs. <laughs> look, look, I just want to say because I, I really get pissed off at people who say, um, "Oh, say what you want about Hitler, well, he, he built some Germany. really great no. roads." Fuck off! Yeah, yeah but he, he didn't though. Because who could stand in Berlin at the end of Hitler's rule in 1945 and go, oh, this has gone well, this rubble. My country is in half. The capital is bombed to shit. And I, I had this argument with someone once and they went, oh, well, you've got to ignore the war. But it's like, that's saying you've got to ignore Hitler's prime foreign policy. He was a warmonger. He mungered the war. Ignoring the war is like saying, oh, well, let's just... You sounded like you know, Jerry Seinfeld then. Like he was a warmonger. He monkered war. <laughs> it's exactly the same. It just as irritates me. It's exactly the same as when people are like, "Oh well, say what you want about the British Empire in India, but well, we built them some good railroads." I'm like, "Yes, the railroads <laughs> did them loads of fucking good when they were experiencing mass famine <laughs> and they were all being shot look, for dissent." Look, if we. We, we, if we want to talk about Nazis, we can do an episode on patterns of force, uh, which oh, we will do yeah. eventually. Right, we will do patterns of force eventually. I promise, um, listeners. I but let's talk about. Things. Let's talk about. To get back to this episode, yeah. can, can can I just point out, just for listeners who might not have seen it, that um, when we talk about uh, Edith Keeler, um, she's played by Joan Collins, right? Oh my god. <laughs> I didn't even notice. Did you not notice that that was Joan Collins? <laughs> That's amazing. Bloody hell! Like Joan, she, she, she's I wonderful. mean, she's excellent in it. Yeah. But 
originally. Second thing jo- I've learned: Joan Collins is still alive. Uh, yeah, she is still alive. Yeah, I she's don't. Still she, she must be. Must be in her nineties now, Joan Collins. Yeah. I would think, but you know, jo- Joan Collins fa- f- went on to become incredibly. Fa- I mean, she was already quite Dave famous Joan at the time Collins. she was in it. Um, went on to be incredibly famous in America for playing Alexis Colby in in Dynasty or Dynasty or however you want to pronounce it. Um, but I'd been in all sorts of other things. Now, now is a dame as well, Dame Legend. Joan Collins. Um, you know, she she's excellent, and she originally had never heard of Star Trek when she was asked to be in in, in this episode. Um, her agent said, "Do you want to be in this thing?" They've asked if they'd have you in it. Um, it, it's like a weird sci-fi thing. It doesn't get that many lists, uh, It doesn't get that many viewers. And she originally was like, mm, "I'm not sure." And then one of she asked her family, and one of her daughters said that she really liked Star Trek. Aww. Um, and so, or, or liked uh, that sort of genre at least. And so, the only reason that Joan Collins agreed to be in the episode is because her daughter was a fan. Oh, excellent! Uh, so we would have never had that excellent performance that she gives in this episode if it hadn't been for Joan Collins' daughter, who who was a fan of Star Trek. Thank so you, Joan Collins. I thought daughter. that was a nice story. I thought that was a good story. Yeah, she's she's really um, compelling in this. And what I love about Edith Keeler is that she is certifiably batshit. Like, she is absolutely (laughs) bonkers. Like, so she's this incredible social worker who's running this homeless mission, essentially, and is, like, incredibly generous. You know, she's supporting all of these people who were sort of in a down-and-out situation in their lives um, because of the Great Depression. Um, So she's doing all of that, and she's also completely stark raving bonkers she has she's constantly <laughs> going on about she like when when she's like giving them all of their soup and bread or whatever that they eat in the evening um instead of just letting them get on with <laughs> eating their dinner she insists that they all listen to her rant about how in the future you know men are going to go to <laughs> other planets on spaceships and um and it starts off in this kind yeah. of like wild kind of sci-fi um, craziness but then she she brings it round i think in this really beautiful way when she says you know in the future there will be a, a world with hope and and i know it's hard to ask you to look for love and happiness when you're just struggling to survive but i insist that you do survive and i insist that you keep on living so that we can get to that better tomorrow and i just think she's like i don't i don't know if if she was alive today she would either be she would either be teal swan <laughs> Or she would be Michelle Obama, and I can't decide which. <laughs> the um the the thing that struck me when I watched that scene when she gets up in front of all of the um the the down and outs and the homeless people who are in there having their their free meal and what have you, uh, and she starts talking to them, and that, that, there's that guy who's like, yeah, you, you didn't expect to eat for free, did you? You got to listen to her, and like. It just reminded me, like, we're all stand-up comedians here. It just reminded me of when you try to do an open mic that's been organised in the corner of a pub and it isn't in a separate room where you've got to try it. When you turn up and none of the people who've turned up to watch it, none of them were there. They weren't expecting comedy. They just came for a drink and comedy's been forced upon them. It felt very much like that. It felt very much like a very specific gig that I did in Warrington once. That's amazing. We've all done that gig, though, haven't we? Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. We've all done, yeah. We've all done the gig where we try to tell people that space travel will be possible in the near future. Well, I was trying to work out, like at this point, I know the what was the situation in terms of you know like rocketry development. I guess because it's prior to World War Two, they hadn't really got much going for them. Like I know that there were no, sci-fi that's... thinkers. 
who goes oh, yeah. and was, go off was this, it, is it meant Sci-fi to be... Sci-fi was starting and stuff. Um, well, it had been around for a bit because you've got awesome models and stuff. So, like, rockets as an idea were kind of there, or at least the idea that you might be able to launch things. Yeah. You've got bombs and shit like that, but, like, rockets really come in into their own in World War Two. Yes, yes. And it's another thing that this episode gets really wrong. Um, this is just because I happen to listen to a podcast by Al Murray about World War Two, <laughs> so I know this shit. Um, but, um, like, Spock at one point says, with the V-2 rockets, the Germans could strike anywhere in the world. It's like, V-2s were very shit. They had an operational range of 280. <laughs> yeah, they just, like, went by gyroscope, <laughs> didn't they? And then just landed wherever yeah. the fuck they landed when their, like, yeah. fuel ran out. <laughs> yeah, the, the V-2, like, they were very intimidating because you could launch a shit ton of them at Britain, but they never hit anything important. Uh, which is why the Germans at the end of the war started using them loads because they were like, well, these aren't going to be strategically useful for defending our homeland. Let's just bomb the shit out of Britain and yeah. hope that, they, uh, that we hit something mm. good. My uncle's like, told you know. me great stories about um, he was part of some roving regiment under an American um, colonel um, during the end of the war in like 44, 45, and they were stationed along the Rhine, and he and he says like they used to turn every night, they'd hear like the whine as all the doodlebugs went up, they'd turn on the floodlights, and then they'd just like pop, 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 one by one, fire them out of the sky, <laughs> because they'd just all be <laughs> droning overhead like... Pfft. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like great fun. <laughs> <laughs> like clay pigeon yeah, shooting. Yeah, basically clay pigeon shooting, but you know, to stop the blitz. So yeah. <laughs> so, clay pigeon shooting to own the lips. Yeah, <laughs> clay, <laughs> clay, clay pigeon shooting to own lips. Like so at this point, Edith Keeler is genuinely relatively radical. Because, you know, even fifteen years from from now, it wouldn't have been like Un- it just wouldn't have been like quite as unfailingly bonkers yeah, well, to suggest the, that we could the leave going to a moon thing and stuff yeah. like that. And I think I, that's I mean, all I, deliberate, though. I mean, I guess in 1930, I know this was written in in the 60s, but if you assume that they have done enough research that they've written the character to be of of the same knowledge of someone yeah. in the 30s, you, you're what 30 years after the publication of. Um, of War of the Worlds by H.G. Yeah, Wells. Yeah. I think that was 1898 or something like that. Um, so, you know, that's not that weird to think that people might be now thinking, ooh, it's been 30 years since that book yeah, came out. Yeah. In the Victorian period, by the yeah. way. We're 30 years after the Victorian <laughs> period, right? That's like that's that's like now making a film that was, you know, that that, that is about something that could never have happened in 1991. Like, it, it, it's, it, it's that level of difference. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, it's reasonable for the radicals of the time yes. to be thinking about space travel at of that course, point. Because yeah. you're only, again, 40 years off from the first moon I know, but that, that was point. just so, I mean, that was really a, a reach. Like, we really reached, yeah. we were really reaching at that point. So I think she is just on, like, she's just past the line of, I think, what would have been considered, like, sensible potential, like, yeah. futuristic discourse. And just just onto the line of, like, fant- fantasy, essentially, to be... Well, yeah, um, I so mean, I guess we were only a couple of decades on from flight at this point yeah yeah like i just think she's great like she just marries this sense of like practicality um and the fact that she is like genuinely like a like a kind-hearted practical person who runs this shelter and like gives out jobs to people and helps people out 
And she marries that with this like great sense of idealism. And then also just with this like completely bonkers optimism that's essentially founded <laughs> on fantasy. And, and I love that. And it's so bizarre. And, and, it, and, and like Jim completely falls for it in the space of about two minutes flat, which I think is adorable. Yeah. But I really love how open-minded she is when Jim's like a little bit weird and Spock's obviously really weird. Um, and then Bones obviously comes along again being a total lunatic. She's very much kind of immediately wants to she wants to believe it's like she wants to be on the x final she wants to believe yeah. that there's something more she really desperately wants to believe that there's something more and i think the 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 tragedy at the heart of this episode that makes it so emotionally impactful is that she dies on the cusp of being able to realize mm. her dream and realize that everything that she suspected about these men is true that they are from the future that you know space travel is real that there is more to this world she wants all of that so desperately to be true and it's just as she's piecing it together and she sees them across the road like you know running into each other and being like oh my god spark you know and she like walks towards them across the road and there's just this sense of wonder on her face of like you can just sense that everything in a whole world yeah. is about to change and that's when she dies and it just i actually feel like i'm gonna cry just talking about it <laughs> oh i i do love the the way that they've made her they they haven't they've made her so this it's it's a female character written in the 60s by men and they haven't made her this empty airhead they've yeah. made her yeah she's a dreamy like uh head in the clouds type character but they but she's not an idiot and she's not just there to serve the purpose of being a uh, a sort of love interest for Kirk or yeah. whatever. She she's she's a, a, a for the time a, a decently written female. She's character. really three dimensional. Um, yeah, yeah. And and, I mean, yeah, and yeah. She's she's got this sort of um, uh, open minded quality to her, which is really useful and and interesting to play with. Uh, she, I would say she's open minded to the point of self endangerment, though. <laughs> in the, Yes, she's in, so in that she finds two strange men in her in her basement and just goes, "Yeah, sure. Do you want to work for me?" Like, yes. to, just and when, for no reason at and all. And when McCoy comes in to her to the mission, like with his face covered in blisters, going "Assassins, assassins," yeah. she just puts her arm around him. It's like, I think you need to lie down. We've got a spare cot in the back room. I'd be like, "No, no, call the police." Yeah, call the police. there's. there's there's an element of this sort of, and, and I think TOS does this a bit with female characters, and it, it is—it's a sign of when it was written. And I think it's—it's not—it's not as big an issue as as other things to do with the time. But there is an element of using female characters as sort of the emotional uh, labor psych yeah. archetype. Yeah, they're they're like the emotional labor nurse archetype mm. who are there specifically to look after endlessly and, good, and, endlessly and, compassionate, endlessly giving. Yeah, you, the men around yeah, you them. don't. Yeah. Yeah, and and the only other type of female character you get in TOS is sex bomb. Is, well, in fact, no, actually, there's two other types. Then you get the sex bomb, and then you get the um, the sort of uh, like in Muds women, you get Muds uh, the machinating wife. Oh, the, the sort of okay. I would dispute all of this. I think obviously, you know, there TOS has got all of its misogynistic problems because of the time it was written but I think that there is actually a fair spread of like complex and interesting female characters in TOS as a whole like Edith okay, Keeler certainly I mean, stands out fair. there's also the Romulan 
chick who's like the kind the the Romulan princess that sort of hoodwinks the whole that hoodwinks Kirk and tries to take over the ship. I can't quite remember her name or that episode. Um, there's you know I suppose you've you've got to power as yeah, well got, in in a mock time again. You've got Amanda uh, Amanda Grayson. I think she's a really interesting character. You know, even though we only see her really for for a, one episode, to be honest, she she's a really yeah, fascinating yeah, yeah, sort of character. And Kirk, you know, encounters quite a lot of sort of strong women on his travels around you know for example in in court martial um what's that? again i can't rem- rena- remember the name of the the barrister that that is um yeah that that's opposing well, you, him you, you're yeah, probably think, right to be fair you've seen more tos than i have so i think the big like thing about tos that i think shows how it is sometimes more progressive than even it intends mm-hmm. to be is that <laughs> watching it now like there is some stuff that I watch in newer Star Trek, like Next Gen or something, that's trying to be progressive, mm. and they say something um, very like, and it doesn't really work, right? Yeah. Like it's just like, oh, mm, that's a, mm, I, you know, I wish you'd not, maybe don't do that. In TOS, whenever. Whenever they say something like, oh, I'm not used to the bridge being commanded by a woman, and all of the men laugh, I'm like, that feels really forced and incongruous with the rest of this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, I- it's weird when a, a, a version of the show made 20 years after the original one in the, in the 80s feels less progressive than the version made in 1967. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I think a lot of mid, like, middle-age star trek which i've just literally invented you know there's like new trek old trek <laughs> middle aged star trek, trek. <laughs> new trek old trek middle aged trek i think 100 percent suffers from that because it's like oh well we've taken all these great ideas from the original show but we're not actually going to go any further yeah they had a woman on the bridge that was groundbreaking in the 60s so we're also going to have one woman on the bridge i i can yeah and that, that woman though. is going to wear a catsuit <laughs> for the entire series i, I can test that though because i think the middle age Trek does do some new things, but I think they do it. They put their progressiveness and their interesting stuff in a different yeah, place. Yeah, because I think it was. I, yeah, very... I agree with you, Nathan. TOS TOS was very progressive for its character and its bridge makeup, and you're right. Like you look at the next gen crew; it's quite a diverse crew. You've got you know black blind engineer, mm-hmm. um, obviously a black actor playing the uh, security. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got you know several women in several prominent positions. An yeah, autistic character. Got... Yes, sure. Um, but yeah, so we've got these people of colour, we've got we've got all sorts, but that's not, you're right, that's no more progressive than um, TOS, which, you know, still commanded by a straight white man with a yeah. uh, straight white man backup and... Uh, but bald, bald captain. Bald, <laughs> that is a sure. groundbreaking, of course. I, I forgot about that, sorry. But you, that. Have you, I assume you know what, uh, what they said at the press interview about that. No. Jake. I, I think you've mentioned yeah. it before on the podcast, but I can't yeah, remember so, so I'll say it again anyway. So um, the when Patrick Stewart was announced and they they were announcing Next Gen and doing a lot of the press interviews, this arsehole journalist goes up being like, um, "In the twenty fourth century, wouldn't they have cured male pattern baldness?" And Gene Roddenberry said, oh. "No, in the twenty fourth <laughs> century, they'd have learned not to care." Uh, <gasps> yes, oh, love that. Excellent. Yeah, oh. so good. Wrecked. Amazing. Speaking. Speaking of progressiveness, can we talk about the... Bra- uh, and I've written this down as a quote. 
my friend is obviously Chinese oh, section of okay, this episode. Let's not, let's, okay, we can't dwell on this too long because this is definitely <laughs> the bit of, the, you know, the one line the of the episode that bit, really yeah. is a clunker. It's just, op- yeah, it's just this racist joke. It's it's sad because all of the other jokes and the banter between Kirk and Spock throughout this episode is excellently written. It's charming and it's funny and it's Spock is really sassy in this episode. Yeah, but this, definitely. Uh, but this line is just like, oh, well, maybe it was funny in 1968 to be like, oh, my friend is obviously Chinese and his his ears are like that because he had an accident with a rice picker. But now it's like, Mm. oh God, facepalm. This is the same show that has Commander Sulu on the bridge. Like, you know, an Asian American character that they've put on the bridge from season one. Yeah. uh, And then they're still making these lazy jokes uh, about Chinese people in this episode. And I know maybe it's written, you know, there are different writers and things like that, but like... but the point is, it just seems a bit, it seems a little bit below what their normal standard yeah. is. But but also, I guess, you know, it is it's the 60s. The 60s and and, People and that's shit. the kind of stuff. You, I mean, it's it's probably nothing compared to the kind of jokes you got in other shows of the 60s of, of a similar kind of yeah. episodic quality, like, you know, like Starsky and Hutch or, or whatever. Yeah. I think that's a bit later. But, and I think to be uh, fair, like maybe also as well, like, again, I'm, I actually, I don't know, but I just wonder if maybe for us, because like we're coming at this as three white viewers, we notice the racist things that are sort of explicit, overt, racist remarks that are things that are that are like yeah. very obvious and very glaring to us. I wonder if maybe a person of color watching this show and please hit us up if you are and you know you have anything yeah, to say so. about that. Um maybe for them this is like not even the least of their worries. I just I just wonder what it would Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Maybe it's it seems it seems yeah. obvious um, to us because it's in the script and it and it's and it's almost it's almost um it's almost pinned in the script as a moment of comedy and a moment of humor. So we're easily able to notice like, oh God, that's racist, but maybe actually. And they do this joke better in, in um, Voyage Home because they, they, they do both the doesn't Spock look weird mm. um, thing better because the excuse in Voyage Home is, um, he well, uh, like Kirk implies, he takes a lot of drugs, <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> and everyone, everyone in the everyone accepts that. Um, and um, but the the other thing is that they do the out of place ethnicity joke better because they, which is you know this kind of joke about racist attitudes and things, mm-hmm. a lot better because in um, in that they send. Um, Chekhov, the Russian, in in the in the height of the Cold War, to look for a part that they need to repair their um, their ship, um, the, which is only found on American military nuclear vessel vessels. Excellent. And they, he, go, he goes he goes about vessels. Well, that's what he does. He goes he goes up to people in San Francisco, going, "Where are the nuclear vessels?" <laughs> <laughs> and everyone, everyone is like avoiding it because why are people so rude? <laughs> the nuclear vessels, <laughs> the nuclear, uh, and he like goes up to a policeman who looks really annoyed, <laughs> and then later in the film he gets caught by the American military. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, that, that's but, a funnier, better version yeah. of this joke, isn't it? And, and a it better is, time, right? a like, better timed version <laughs> as well, because that's obviously self-knowing. Yeah. It's like a self-aware joke about the time that the film was released, whereas this feels just like po- pointing fun at, at people from the 
from East Asia for looking a bit different. Mm. Um, you know, um, that, that, it also that, makes me just think of like all of the millions of Chinese people who died during the Great Leap Forward, <laughs> like just before yeah, this, at this time period in China, and it just makes me think, oh, it's just depressing, isn't to it? Be f- yeah, I, to be fair, I don't think America knew about that at the time. But <laughs> go on. Can I can I introduce some levity? Yeah. Um, yes, please. Because we were talking about Sulu earlier, and <gasps> yes. I was just googling. I was just googling to find um, out if they talk about you know his origins and his background, other than he's uh, you know American Asian. But um, uh, I found this like funny little um, epithet. Um, so in some Japanese jo- dubs, Sulu's family name is changed to Kato because there is no Lu syllable in Japanese. Hmm. So to Japanese speakers, Sulu does not sound like Japanese oh. name. Interesting. Um, so, but in recent movies, they managed to change it only slightly to Saru. What? With long vowels. This worked fine until, <laughs> until a problem <laughs> emerged. <laughs> Discovery came oh, out. Oh no! Oh no! That's hilarious. I really like that. That's I, funny. I, do, I do love that. That to be fair. Also, uh, fucking love Captain Saru. Uh, Smash don't it, don't right. no spoilers please again i'm oh have you not I'm s- sorry have you not disco. seen i have to save series three because alex hasn't watched series two yet so oh, i mean uh, you're in for a treat i can't I wait I really we should, can't have, we should uh, have a watch party maddie we oh should, like, yes please watch uh, it together. but back to i, I haven't watched li- it yet listen, either listeners if you want if, if you would like to be involved in a uh in a watch party of season three of disco we we can watch like the first two episodes or something together and we'll stream us watching them yeah, uh, we could do it on then, Twitch or something. Oh, I'd love yeah, that. Yeah, if we do oh, that on I'd Twitch. Oh, I'd love that so get, much. That would make me get, so happy. I, I would love to do that. Oh, I can't let's wait. Get, let's get on that. Let's let's arrange that. Some, we're, we're doing and when you Christmas... say let's, let's arrange that, let's get on that, what you mean is Nathan sort out the text. Right. Back to City on the Edge of Forever, because there's so yes. much to say about this episode. I want to talk about soppy bisexual Jim Kirk in this episode who is just honestly this this episode gives just the fandom some of the most archetypal and most beloved version iterations of Kirk and Spock it's Beanie Spock and Domestic Jim Beanie Spock being really grumpy while he like tries to make his radio and Jim is just like doing the shopping for him but I love the fact that like Jim goes back in time puts on flannels like and tartan flannels like the good pansexual that he is and then (laughs) immediately falls head over heels in love after knowing this woman for two minutes two minutes and he turns (laughs) into such a mess like when she kisses him on the stairs he almost trips and falls down the stairs himself like he he like falls into the banister rail i absolutely love it and i love how like all the way through the episode (laughs) spock is just giving him side eye of absolute disbelief At his relationship with Edith. And there's, oh my God, so many iconic moments. Like the moment where it's, and it's unintentionally, it's supposed to be tragic and it kind and it is, but it's also with hindsight, completely hilarious where um, Jim turns around and says, I think I'm in love with Edith Keeler. <laughs> and then it just cuts to Spock who says, Edith Keeler must die. <laughs> <laughs> it's so brutal. <laughs> It's just absolutely hilarious. And then, like, again, when Jim and Jim and Keeler are kissing on the staircase, Spock opens the door, walks out, sees that they're kissing, glares, and then immediately just walks back in and shuts the door behind him. Oh, so many good moments. It's just such a, like, cute little fluffy 
the relationship between Jim and Spock in this episode is just so wholesome and sweet and kind of well drawn. It just makes <clears throat> me happy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, I think the 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 Spock Kirk relationship is really well explored mm. here as well because it, it puts them into a weird position, like a, a weird situation yeah. where they're not really sure of each other's roles yeah. and like. I mean, there's that great line in it where uh, where Edith, you know, they're, they're at the bottom of uh, of the whatever it's called, the mission that Edith runs, the Twenty First um, Street Mission. Yeah, and they have that bit where uh, Spock comes in and says, "I've fixed the furnace," <laughs> and then Edith like en- finishes his sentence by saying, "Captain." Yeah. Even even when he doesn't say it, he still says it, I and know, it's like, she's so smart. oh, that's such a good, that's such a perceptive, she's so insightful. Pe- yeah, it's such a an insightful and perceptive thing for her to say, and it, it's a really well written bit as well because they didn't have to put that bit mm. in that, but that that that's a that that's specifically written to be to show how insightful and inspe- and sort of intelligent this character is, like how perceptive she is. But also to highlight the the weird, well, not weird, but like the the intricacies of the relationship between yeah, Spock and Kirk. Yeah, the very enmeshed uh, relationship, and she does it yeah, later yeah, on yeah. as well, where um, she says, "You know, I can t- anyone can tell that you two don't belong here." And he says, "Well, where do we belong?" And she turns to Spock, and she's like, "You at his side, like you always have been and always shall be." Which <laughs> very gay, and then <laughs> and then for Kirk, she's like, and you, you know, you belong to another time or something like that, and it's just beautiful. Like she's, it, oh, I just want them to be a big polyamorous love triangle. Uh, we're, we're 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 nearly an hour in, and uh, and uh, but I I would like to point out uh, a few things that I noticed about the start of the episode because we've talked a lot about the bit when they get into the 30s and the and the character dynamics between that. There is a whole 15-minute section at the start of the episode uh, where they're still in the 23rd century and they're still on board the, the ship or on a planet and stuff. Um, and I would like to point out how rubbish both the the reconnaissance training <laughs> and, and the tricorders that Starfleet are given are at the start because so bones disappears he he he, he, he jumps through beams time down to the planet yeah but before oh, he even sorry. jumps through time he, he he beams down to this planet and then they go down to look for him and before he jumps through the portal uh you see some red shirts and spock and a few others uh, sort of looking at looking at Nuhura, yeah looking at tri- looking at tricorders wa- walking around trying to find him <laughs> Presumably, the tricorder has some sort of scanning system oh on it God, so that they can yeah. they're, they're looking for. They can't see him anywhere, and they walk straight past a rock <laughs> that is strangely bones shaped. <laughs> um, and then, and then, once they've walked past it, Bones gets up and runs away <laughs> like he's been hiding behind the rock. Uh-huh. That happens twice. Yeah. That happens twice, and really, they don't find him. This is a really how shameful, bad is that? It's a really shameful moment for her. Just use find my she's phone. Like, she's like, I can't see him anywhere, find Captain. And I'm like, Uhura, you just walked past him, and you were looking at the sky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like. I could find somebody who was hiding like that now, and they, they have two centuries worth of technology on me, and I'm blind. I, Amazing. I could find somebody 
you, you know, it, it's easy. Yeah, like I said before, just turn, just ring him, ring him, yeah. and hear his phone go because off. Because he because drunken bones do. would definitely just have his tricorder go off at his side. Like speaking of people being <laughs> shit at their jobs, Bones is an atrocious medical doctor in this episode. I mean, my God, he's appalling. <laughs> the first thing that happens, right, is that he's had, oh, this is a very dangerous compound. Inject too much of it, and you, who knows what it will do to a man. He injects Sulu with a tiny amount, and Sulu gives this like grimace this really bizarre like he goes like Ring! then bones is just like well i might as well wander around the bridge with this hypodermic needle exposed and pointing towards my own abdomen and then immediately <laughs> injects himself with all of the substance and then i'm like he is such a chaos doctor i like he is so chaotic and when he's down on the planet and he's running around screaming about assassins and blah 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 again he just lets his phaser get taken out of his pocket so this homeless man can zap himself and he has an emotional breakdown about the idea that in this time period people are like barbarically sewing each other up like hand sewing through skin and that that's how doctors had to work and i'm like bones you cannot talk you cannot act like this <laughs> horrifies you and you're so sensitive and ethical when you've just been running that's around it. like a loony again in the in the film um there's this great, after Chekhov gets injured, running away from the American military and they're rescuing him, they um, talk about this woman who's damaged her kidney and wants to go on dialysis, and, mm-hmm. and Bones goes, dialysis! And then he reads the medical notes, and he, he goes, here, take this. <laughs> and he like, gives this woman a pill, and then nothing happens, like, you know, this whole action sequence with them rescuing Chekhov occurs. And then they pass this woman again in a wheelchair and all of the doctors are astounded and goes, that's the man! He gave me a new kidney! (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. He is a chaos doctor. Absolute agent of chaos. Yeah, he is definitely a chaos doctor. I just... Something that has occurred to me about this episode is I think this is one of the episodes that demonstrates a universal strength of Star Trek that I have only really realised while watching them for this podcast, is that I think one of the always strong, a conceit that produces some of the strongest episodes of Star Trek is we don't we use all of this sci-fi stuff to set up things like the time travel in this episode, but ultimately the story is quite small and personal. So I'm thinking about this episode, I'm thinking about the episodes on uh, Saru's home planet in Discovery Season 2. I'm thinking about, you know, um, there's an episode of TNG that, uh, well, the episode of TNG where Picard is captured and there are four lights is like that to some extent as well. But so is the episode dealing with the question of Klingon honour and Worf's considering suicide, so is a lot of the Miles O'Brien episodes in Deep Space Nine. Dare I even say I'm it? Sure so is the one from Enterprise where Trip and T'Pol go to Vulcan and T'Pol has to decide to get married to someone she's not in love with? <gasps> <laughs> I, lo- I love how you've become... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> a, obsessed like a proper, you don't understand a proper obsessive about I've, enterprise now i've watched every single trip into pole scene from enterprise back to back <laughs> and nothing else i don't give a shit about anything else on enterprise i just want them to be happy and to see trip Tucker take his shit off anyway carry on <laughs> no but like and this is maybe the first argument. it doesn't like and i think again like you know I, 
we said last week, or I said last week, Picard's family dying in a fire is a something you can relate to. And I really like here that the decision, the, the action they would have to take to save Keela is easy, right? Like, you know, I'm not being funny, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens in Star Trek where I'm, like, very impressed with our hero's skills and powers. I could have saved Keela from that car if I'd have wanted to. And I think yeah. that's why the episode works so well. You could be there and you could it's have done it. It's excruciating. It's absolutely excruciating. Yeah. The moment where Kirk, like, leaps towards the road and then changes his stops. mind and instead stops McCoy from saving Keela. And then when McCoy's like, what have you done, Jim? Do you know what you've done? And Spock's like, he knows exactly what he's done, Doctor. And you just... And, like... Again, this is where I wanted to just call back to something at the very beginning of the episode and contest that act- that Shatner's acting in this episode is bad because the look on his face when he's like clinging to McCoy and he realises that he's just basically killed the woman he loves, he's let her die, it's just devastating. Like, it's absolutely heartbreaking. I think, I think Shatner does a really good job in this episode of being dopey, love struck jim uh, he's like soft he's soppy he's he he has this sense of wonder about him that even though they've got literally the fate of the galaxy on their shoulders in this episode you never feel it at all because exactly like what you said nathan it's the dr- the actual drama is interpersonal it's about spock jim and keela and this horrible decision that Jim is going to have to make. And it's all building up to there and building up to there. And yes, there is this like exciting, overarching plot with the fact that it's about saving the world and saving the Enterprise and getting back to everything they know and love. But it's so grounded in those tiny interactions between them. I think it works beautifully. And all the more staggering that they do that even with at least 15 minutes of the episode not actually being in new york at all it's just setting up <laughs> that plot so yeah wow it's so well written it deserves all of the yeah. praise it's gotten over the last 50 years i think this episode shows what he was capable yeah. of doing yeah. with with his ability as an actor at the time um and th- this comes through you know he's he he done plays and he done shakespeare and stuff by this point like that's where he but even in incubus his acting isn't as bad as it is in some episodes of tos and i know that tos must have been difficult for an actor at that time when sci-fi isn't a big thing you don't really know what is expected of a character. nothing to act off like, <laughs> you know, you know, but I think this was this was an excuse for him to act a character that he could have realistically been cast in ten years before Star Trek. Uh, you know, it, it's a it, it, it's a character that could have been a real person uh, in in a, a you know a Tennessee Williams play about the twenties or something like that. I think uh, it's also from what you're saying a really good example of why Captain Kirk is such a beloved legacy character in spite of the fact that the main thing people always say about him is that his acting was bad but i think the best version of of jim if you're going to make a, a sort of a, a super version of an actor that could play jim kirk would be a combination of chris pine's sort of action hero quality and uh uh, and the sort of human soft acting quality of uh 60s uh William Shatner. It's interesting that in TNG they kind of split those roles up now. Now yeah. that I think about it, like you, you, you have Picard being the soft, 
gentle, human, pacifist and, type. Yeah, and, and then Riker being... And Riker as the commander. Yeah. Riker is yeah. like um, what one of my f- was supposed to be, but actually wasn't. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, look, I, I think we're, we're, we're about done. Unless anyone's got any particular... Uh, things they would like to say about this episode. I just want to point out uh, briefly that the uh, bridge sequences heavily imply that they can measure time in like a in like a oh there's too much time over here. <laughs> and there's, there's different worlds of time here. I thought um, you were going to say I can measure time, mate. I've got a watch. <laughs> <laughs> we we haven't had because uh, I think because we've enjoyed this episode so much, we haven't had a single head cannon yet. Um, Unless I'm allowed I, I, to say that my head cannon is that. Jim and Spock just like live happily ever after in a condo in Brooklyn, and the Edith Keeler becomes their like living girlfriend, and they all and they all have a great time together. I I my head cannon was going to be that uh, that the the death of Edith Keeler by being hit by a car was the uh, the inspiration for F. Scott Fitzgerald's book The Great Gatsby, but I do. <laughs> Off the top of my head, I do think that Greg Gatsby was published in 1928, so it would be two <laughs> years earlier than Edith Keeler was killed by that car. But <laughs> I love know, that though. It's... That's a great idea. I really like that. Um, Timey whiny. I, I, I mean, we also need to talk about which character in this episode has tried to suck their own cock, and I have a very specific answer. Oh yeah, uh, go for w- it. Which which is when they're in the um, when they're in the 21st Street uh, mission. Yeah, there's a bit. After Edith Keeler's done a little open mic speech, um, there's a bit where uh, Spock and Jim are sat talking to each other, and then uh, an old homeless guy with a beard sort of walks <laughs> in between them and like separates them to walk past them, and does like a sort of weird little <laughs> sly wink to camera and strokes his beard. Uh, I, I reckon he's definitely tried to suck his own cock at some point. Agreed. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Uh, if that's it, then I think we we can uh, yeah. we can say we can say that that's the end for this episode. I genuinely loved this episode. It's been really fun, uh, and I love that. It's just that the way, like really, all we're saying is go watch this episode. Yeah, because do it. It's on Netflix, and and I mean, almost all Star Trek is on Netflix. Uh, so, but but yeah, definitely go. If you've never seen TOS, and you think oh, it might be a bit old fashioned and a bit sort of rubbish uh, compared to New Trek or whatever. I'd give this a good shout because, like, this is, I think, uh, a solid episode. This is as close to TOS gets to being like TNG, I think, um, as far as I can see. And I think if you if you're a TNG person who doesn't like TOS, as some people who contact us uh, purport to be, I think this episode is a really good idea of how good TOS can be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but. With that said, uh, that's the end of this episode. I'm really excited for next week because next week is our Christmas special. Woo! Woo! Happy Christmas, everyone. It's Christmas and we're going to do a Christmas special. And uh, we haven't agreed on this yet, but I would like to flout that uh, I think we should, like in our Halloween special where we watched Incubus, uh, I would like to suggest um, the 2015 Christmas classic starring William Shatner, just in time for Christmas, made <gasps> by Hallmark Movies. Yes! Uh, in which... Okay, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. In which case, <laughs> uh, either that or, or I'm well. I can't. I wonder if we can find another actor. But um, I've tried nah, my let's best. Go for it. I've tried my best. Let's and I go can't for find. it. Let's see more. Let's see more of some Bill Shatner. Well, th- I think also this will be a difference because last time we looked at a non-Trek Shatner film, it was pre him being in Trek. It was black and white, 1960s. Oh, and now it's post. This, this is post-Trek. This is 2015. It was made five years ago. Uh, it's called Just In Time For Christmas, and it stars William Shatner as a magic coachman. So, uh... <laughs> So we'll fight. We'll be we'll be reviewing that for our Christmas special. Uh, it's called Just in Time for Christmas. So watch that pre uh, next week if you want to join in with the fun. And um, otherwise, all that's left to say is uh, live long and prosper and goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.